0: Welcome to The Few Podcast. Never in the field of human content but so much owed by so many, to so few. So
1: you want to become one of The Few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time.
0: I have a dream.
1: Hear inspiring stories
2: from The Few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality.
1: It's a day for all Australians, isn't it? It's a day that brings us all together. Five, four, three. One, liftoff, we have a liftoff. Now with your hosts, Boo and Sean.
0: Welcome back, everybody, to The Few Podcast with Boo, that is me, and my podcast buddy, Seany, Sean Sewell. G'day, Sean. How are you doing today, mate? Awesome, Boo. We're looking forward to uh, this episode of The Few for sure. Yeah, I'm in the ocean room today, as you can see. It's a beautiful day down here in Sydney and a bright blue ocean behind there. But a a bit of a blue ocean strategy, some might say, which is a pretty lame segue into our guest today, who's far more exciting and has far more depth about him than the picture of the ocean behind me. Really excited. I had a good chat with uh, today's guest earlier. We have got this really weird connection. Both of us started our career and kind of had sliding doors moment. One of us went this way, the other went that way. But we'll keep that for a little bit later. Firstly, I just really want to welcome today Campbell McPherson. Thank you so much, Campbell, for joining us here today. Campbell is a, gosh, award-winning author, agent for change, leadership coach, speaker, basically a thought leader when it comes to human beings making change and transition and uh, uniquely, Campbell, you've sort of made a bit of a, a move into the second phase of life with your well, latest yes. book. So, so Campbell, thanks so much for coming on the
2: few podcasts Absolute today.
1: Absolute pleasure. I've been looking forward to this for, for weeks. It's so great to oh, meet nice you, of, you know, say. in person and great to meet you too, Sean.
2: Yeah, great to have you on, Campbell. Thank you. So, uh,
1: Campbell,
0: once upon a time, you started flying airplanes. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that story? Well, it wasn't
1: so much flying, really. It was it was more like Buzz Lightyear would have said, it was falling with style. Um, yeah, I, I had to memorise the eye chart in the Air Force. I'm about 10 years or so old, older than you. So so back in the early 80s, I joined the RWF Academy thinking, oh, I'm going to be a fighter pilot like you were, but I had to memorise the eye chart just to keep um, flying. Luckily, back then at Point Cook, they never changed the eye chart. So So back in the 80s, all you really needed to do to learn how to fly was no C-L-E-D-H-B-T-V-O, and you're through. (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's, it's got to hustle your way through. It's a, no bluff too tough, as they say. <laughs>
1: There's several defining moments, but one particularly when I thought, no, this wasn't for me, is as I was coming down onto a, a different runway. I was- That's a fairly standard portion into, of most flights, mate, standard, even commercially yeah, honest. It's been, it's been a while. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, I almost uh, took out the guard box at the front of the base and the guard actually poked his head outside and ducked as I, as I went past. So when I when I finally landed, my instructor, he really didn't like me very much, he unscrewed his joystick and started to beat me over the head or over the helmet, luckily, with it, and really I, I shouldn't have, have laughed. Anyway, so I have the record of being the worst pilot ever to make it through to uh, jet training, and, you know, it's something to be proud of.
0: Absolutely. And if that didn't happen, you would not have a story to tell.
1: Exactly. It's, and This that's is
0: the exactly. thing about life.
1: It it is, and of course, that was the the first change after from that was well, the first change was accidentally joining the air force. Uh, the second change in my life was realizing that wasn't for me, and so my career has just gone on a a roller coaster ride of of an eclectic array of careers ever since that really. And change has been the only constant throughout all of them. I think Isn't there's what- a bit of a mindset with uh, pilots as well.
0: As I get older and come across more pilots, they tend to. Sean's dad's a pilot, by the way. And I don't think we've actually ventured into before on the few podcast. <laughs> yeah, and, and Sean was a, a racing car driver, and his brother is. So between the three of wow. us, I'd say there's some ADHD slash. There's something wrong with pilots in terms of their ability to do one
2: thing for a exceedingly long period of time.
1: That certainly is. <laughs>
2: So what were some of the lessons that you took away from that experience then, Campbell? Like, I mean, if, if other people have got through, you know, oh, I'm going to go and do this and become a, a, a fighter pilot or, or whatever the case is. And then suddenly there's this moment of, oh, okay, I'm really, really crap at that. Now I've got to yep. rethink and reinvent the wheel. Obviously back then and compared to what you know now. How did you process that at the time? How did you deal with that change? Were you happy to not be flying given that you nearly took out the guard tower and the guard in it as well?
1: <laughs> that was one of my best landings, I really. <laughs> um, looking back on it, what I learned was you can't be good at everything, so you just have to face it. So you have to accept reality, even though it was something that you always, you wanted throughout your your childhood. So yeah, there I was at twenty-one thinking, okay, I'm not good at this. When I resigned, I walked into my instructor's office and I saluted and said, Sir, I'd like to resign. And he said, Oh, thank goodness for that. So, so it was a mutually agreeable parting of of the ways. But what I learned was you can't be good at everything. So then I, I looked around and thought, right, what skills have I got? What qualifications have I got? Who would find the experience that I have today valuable? And so then I applied for Hawker Pacific to be a management trainee. And off I went on all sorts of different adventures. But I think that's what I learned to actually take stock, have a look at what your skills are, your experience are, and most importantly, who would find them valuable. And then use what you've got, use the assets you've got.
2: One thing that I have seen in, I work with a lot of uh, small business owners in a group that I run. And one of the things yeah. that I've seen too, is when someone hits a wall like that, they can respond in one of two ways. They can do what you did and they can be, okay, okay, not really working. Out. I'm not good at that. I need to shift direction and then move forward again. Whereas other people have this singular idea and when that doesn't come to fruition, they fall in a heap. Have you had any moments like that in your life you've been pretty much giving yourself other options or have you seen other people overcome that type of situation? I, I've seen
1: people dive into the the, the trough of what I call the burning platform change curve when big change is done to them. In fact, this is a perfect segue into my latest book, The Power to Change, which is out now available from Booktopia. It's all about how to embrace personal change. So when big change is done to us, we go through a roller coaster of emotions that Professor or Dr. Kubler-Ross found back in the 1960s. And all of us change practitioners, we've adapted her change curve. She called it the grief curve, but the change curve. So it's a roller coaster of emotions that, that we go through. And at the bottom of it is what I call it the trough of depression, where when you're hit with big change, you go through denial, you go through anger, you go through fear, you go through anxiety, and then you do hit a wall, as you mm. brilliantly said. And and either you've then got a choice to be able to then drag yourself out of that trough with your head kicking and to go, no, there are options, I've got talents, I can do something with this, I need to pivot my strategy, as you were alluding to, and then your heart can kick and go, okay, no, I can really do this. I've, I've tried, I've experimented and it can be done to move on. That's the crucial time when you're in that trough. And I know very good friends who have stayed in that trough all the year and the uh, all of their life after their first hit and so many others who have crawled out of it either with help or by looking themselves in the mirror and saying, okay, you've been dealt a bad hand. There's nothing you can do about it. What am I going to do about it now? So it's about looking at the future. But that's what the book is, is all about, is how to cope with those moments in life, but also to make sure you don't just have a five-year strategy as businesses used to do before COVID, to have, make sure strategy is flexible. And again, any strategy, being a personal or business is based on what I talked about earlier, is a full understanding and appreciation of the talents and the skills and all the things that make you special, whether as an individual or as a business. And then you can have a flexible strategy because the core, if you like, to use a yoga term, is strong. Campbell, two questions based on what you just said. The first one is
0: how easy is it or is it advisable when you're experiencing your first major changes in life to do that? By yourself, or should you make it a point of finding some help? And secondly, your first experience with change, probably like Sean's and myself, you didn't yeah. go, Oh, this is change. So at what point in your life did you start <laughs> identifying with this concept of change?
1: Yeah, Boo, that's a really good one. The first one is always. Always seek help. It's always better to seek help, but sometimes the help is not there. As anyone who has been made redundant, which I have a couple of times in in my life, companies, particularly if it's organizational change, they don't really offer the help that they should. They never have. They never will. And some try, some pretend to try, but find someone. And if you can't find someone, know that you can be your own catalyst for change. You can be your own leader for change if you want to. The second one is a really good question. When did I realize change was a discipline and actually label it as such? It was when I joined Anderson Consulting back in the mid-90s after having run a multimedia business before I knew you could put multi and media together to cause a word that (laughs) described what I was doing. So I joined that about 97 and I into the change division. And I went, that's interesting. I didn't know change was a thing. I didn't know it was a discipline. I just thought it was something that happened. So that's when when I... Uh, 25 years ago is when I started to go, hang on, this change thing, this resonates. This is a discipline and I can make this work and I can make it work better than Anderson Consulting used to do because their change was all about systems, was all about processes, was all about spreadsheets, was all about business models. And change is about none of them, it's about people.
0: It's interesting, Campbell, when you talk about the human approach to change and the systems approach to change. One of the interesting things about being a thought practice leader is obviously when you start your journey, as you evolve and you receive more inputs from various companies and individuals that have undertaken this change, do you see a, a symbiotic relationship between the two? That freefall change, which is all humanist in its approach, is, mm. I, I guess, doomed to fail in some respects, that, that there is some
1: structure and some yep. methods and so some right. habits you that both. you can apply? No, no but you're, you're totally right, you do need both, but the emphasis has got to be on the people. So it's an 80-20 thing. 20%, you've got to have processes, you've got to have structure, <laughs> otherwise people will be running off in all sorts of directions. A great bumper sticker saying I, I read somewhere was, was that strategy without implementation is a daydream, and implementation without strategy is a nightmare. You know, you, you need both sides of this coin. So, so when it comes to change, you've got to have the process and you've, you've also got to have the outcomes, but the outcomes has got to outweigh the process. Because a, a process without outcomes is, is a, you know, a road to nowhere. It's a, it's a map to nowhere. So you've got to have both, but the emphasis has got to be on the outcomes. In fact, what I've learned over the last 25 years about change, looking back on it, can be distilled into five key truths, really, that sound like blinding glimpses of the obvious, but they're really not. And the first one is that all change is inevitable. Now, that sounds a bit obvious, but if you think about it at the moment, we're all coming out of the pandemic or thinking about coming out of the pandemic, depending on on where you live. And we all are thinking, oh, good, that change can be over and we can get back to normal. And 80% of us are thinking that, and we shouldn't because change is not a project, it's not a one-off, it's not a short-term, it's a part of life. And, and those of us that think, oh, good, we can get over that virus or defeat that virus, we're, we're kidding ourselves. So change is inevitable. The second one is that all change is personal, and that's when I was talking about before. I learned that from Anderson Consulting, who was all change is systems. I've been talking about, and it wasn't. It's all change is actually personal. It's about people. Clearly, Campbell, this is why Andersons ended up going out of business, right? You, they just yeah, didn't listen is. to it. <laughs> it is actually going out of business. They did a fantastic deal. They did such a great deal that they um, all of their partners collected billions and had to change the name in the process. But that's another story. The third thing is we all erect our own barriers to change, and we should and we can overcome them. The fourth thing, probably most important, is that all change is emotional. Emotion is four times more powerful than change. And the last thing is that, you know, we don't change if we're told to, we only change if we want to. So, as leaders, it's actually our job to help our people to want to change.
2: And that's a great reference. And, and uh, you know, you're talking about obviously that difference between systems and people. I mean, changing a system is, uh, you know, a process or, a you know, whatever it is, technology that you're using. That's somewhat easy but the actual human piece so that's kind of the steps of what we need to do but the human part is the hard part as you say first they need to want to change it you can't make them change doesn't matter whether you've spent 20 years with someone or you've known them for five minutes if they don't want to change they're not going to listen to you so it makes no no difference whatsoever what would you say if you know people are looking to be able to adapt and embrace it more what are some of the the methods or the, the ways that you've seen people be able to do that Uh, I suppose with more ease, you know, with less stress and challenge and things like that. And on that note, have you ever seen a a change that was just so bad and just pull
0: your hair out, car crash, so poorly managed? You thought, I've I've definitely learned a really good lesson from that.
1: That's such a good question because I was hoping you weren't going to ask me, I've ever seen a change that is so good. That (laughs) would be really difficult to find. Change is so bad. Yeah, I've, I've seen so many over the years and it relates to Sean's question too. And that's, and that's about, any system, any major IT change or almost every single one that I've seen has been a different level of, of disaster, but at least hasn't actually delivered what they set out to achieve. There was one particularly that, that I remember is that it was a, a wealth management company that that set about redoing their whole sales and advice systems. And what they made all the mistakes in the book, which was great because then that was enabled me to write the first book, The Change Catalyst, which actually won the 2018 Business Book of the Year over here in the UK, which is fabulous. So it's very so, cool. Amazing. So the change, that was a really clumsy segue, but I had to get it in. Um, so, so, so what happened here is that, that there were no clarity on what they were trying to achieve. And it was a really poor specification. And then that poor specification then changed dramatically to be scope creep, as, as everybody calls it. So they weren't clear on what they were trying to achieve. They weren't clear on why they were trying to achieve it. It started out being a sales aid and it ended up being a, a compliance tool, and they are two completely different things. They then didn't engage their people properly. They then just continued to hit the project team as though it was a racehorse, and if they just whipped it a bit more, it would go faster, which, of course, doesn't work in change. So all of the 10 reasons why change fails I found to be revealed in this one project. It ended up being five times over budget five times late and then scrapped and replaced completely with a package solution, which they should have done in the first place. And and it was all down to leadership and big change projects like that get a momentum all their own, like a steam train racing down the tracks. And it's politically impossible to jump out in front of it and say, stop, where are we going? But that's what needs to happen on, on big systems projects, because it becomes politically impossible to question. And if we don't question, if we don't engage our people, any change projects do
2: on, on the individual level. So the individual struggling with the change with something that's going on, be it a redundancy or a broken relationship or something that mm. whatever the, the human element part of it, what have you seen that are ways to make that a little bit easier process for people to move yeah, through okay. that change?
1: Well, in the, in the workshops that I run for employees on embracing change workshops, based on the second book, based on the power to change, Almost every single workshop, I'll get someone either come up to me in the break or in the last six months or so, email me after in the webinar and I'll put their screen blank, who have become extremely emotional because of the subject that we're talking about. We take them through the change curve. We we explain that everyone erects barriers to change, and we talk about what some of the, the key default change barriers are. And one lady came up to me and said, I'm really sorry. I noticed she was just. Sort of wiping away tears. And she said that her father had just died three weeks before. And the emotions I was describing as we went around this change curve, she said, I experienced every single one of them and I didn't know they were normal. I thought I was weak. I thought I was a loser. I thought I was needing to go for help. You know, I I was I was really worried about myself. And now I just see this is a normal human reaction to change. And just realizing that is a huge first step. And the second one is to identify the barriers that you do erect to change. We all do. It's an evolutionary survival mechanism. So once you realize that this is happening normally, then there are tips and techniques that we help people with to be able to see them clearly and work to not just overcome them, but to diminish the barriers and even harness some of those emotions to help us on our way.
2: A lot of the time, when you're inside the box, you can't read the label on the outside, as that's they say. Right. Oh, and right. if you are, if you have a boundary or a block that's stopping you from moving forward, and you can't see it, it'd be great to hear what what are the common ones that you see. What are those common barriers for people that they've put in place that they may not actually know that are there?
1: Yeah, I mean, the first one is the most difficult barrier to overcome, and that's denial. The only way to overcome that, and you know that when big change is done to you, you're in denial. In fact, you just think that this is not happening and elizabeth kubler-ross who invented the grief curve in the first place she actually said that that denial has a value denial actually gives you a enables you to pause to be able to soak the big change in before you can get over it but the only way to get over denial is to admit it but you can only admit it when you're ready if that makes sense a host of other barriers as well fear being a huge one fear of Obviously, financial loss, fear of failure is a, a significant barrier when it comes to business. Fear of actually being of not changed earlier, or fear of being blamed is another one that I see all of the time. And that is that, that if someone has been in charge of a particular area that is now needing to change, they're afraid that they'll be blamed for having not changed earlier. And that, that we see in business all, all the time. So to overcoming fear of failure, it's about trying to make is momentum in small steps. Uh, which have a whole chapter on resilience. In the it's book. a really
0: interesting, interesting point you made, right. Campbell. I've just personally, and Sean's been riding this wave with me for the last year. Took a year off, went back, started flying again, but always with a view to uh, coming up with the you know the last phase, the last push. Yep. Not the last one, but like the big commitment, mid-40s into 50s, you know? Yep. And uh, having been an entrepreneur and always been a business owner, it's this belief that you've got to own a business, you've got to build a business, and that's where your value is. But my heart's always pulled me into thought leadership, you know, speaking, writing books, that type of environment. And I found myself for the entire year struggling to let go and really only acknowledging, I guess, about maybe just only a couple of weeks ago, that it was a fear of letting go of that belief system and doing something that I really wanted to do. But because I really wanted to do it, I think deep down I was kind of scared of it and it ah, failing. And even though you I know think- all of this stuff, even though yeah. you you have that self-awareness, it is amazing how that emotion just gets its fingers into
1: you. But that's perfect. There's, there's someone of you've had a first very successful career, forging your second very successful career, and still – Afraid of failure. I think it was a very good friend of mine who is a director of, of Roth, youngest ever director of Rothschilds, and he was afraid of being found out. He said, "In you know, imposter syndrome, which is another fear of failure." Every single day, he would get out of bed and go, "Today's the day they're going to find me out." <laughs> and and yeah. so, so a fear of failure—it's an ingrained thing. It's as I said, it's evolutionary. It's it's normal to acknowledge that. And the, what you did—you just stood detached. From that and went, isn't that interesting? After all the success, I'm still fear of failing, particularly strong when it's something you really, really want to do. That's why I didn't write my first book till I was 53. I didn't want to be a rubbish author, I wanted to be good at it. So I was scared stiff to even try, <laughs> which is which, frankly, looking back is nonsense, but uh, I completely identify with your dilemma, and it's very, very normal.
0: And I think that's where the, the real demonstration of courage is, is that doesn't have to be pulling someone out of a burning building, although no doubt you'd do that, Campbell, if you happened upon that one day. But that yeah. thing where you, despite that fear, you jump into it. And I think that's where you unlock this latent potential and that sort of freefall moment between the book being published and, and the success and the, the investment is, I think human beings create so many amazing things in that moment.
1: I think you're right. The 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 big weight was the two weeks before I submitted it to Wiley and they said yes. And I thought, what if again someone says no? And this book I put my heart and soul into it. This is a this is a story of my life and change. This is going gotta relaunch my consultancy. I was working in the Middle East at the time. I was gonna relaunch my consultancy. And I thought oh, my gosh, I've really gone out on the edge of the, the cliff here. This is, this. is I've gone out on a limb. This is why did you set yourself up for this level of failure, Campbell? And then at the last minute they said yes, and I think I fainted.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a huge demonstration of relief uh, right there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and again, as we know, like all of that emotion, all of that fear and concern and worry only comes from us. We make it all up in our own heads. That is so true, Sean. It is just normal. It is just every single person. You know, same thing like yourself, Bill. I mean, I've gone through a number of changes in the last couple of years, different cities, personal changes, business changes. And every time when you say yes to something, and well, my thing is say yes to it and then figure it out afterwards. You're like, oh, shit. Like (laughs) because (laughs) now the change is going to come because I've said yes. I don't have a choice. So that's helped most of the time.
1: Sean, sure, you just described my career. I've I've just kept being tapped on the shoulder and doing daft things. And so I was <laughs> tapped on the partner. shoulder um, when I moved to the UK to be marketing director of this new company called Virgin Wines, which was going to be an uh, online wine business. And I went, sure, what would you like me to do? And they said, marketing director. And I went, that's interesting. I've never been one of those before. So why don't I do that? And then, then I was tapped on the shoulder to be HR director of a thousand person wealth management firm. And I went, really? You, HR's the one thing not on the CV? And he went, no, you'd be really good at it. So um, I became <laughs> HR director. And then the next thing was strategy director of Zurich for the emerging markets division. And it's like, it's such an illogical, you know, failed pilot with physics degree. So I've never used that. Went on to be a multimedia entrepreneur, not knowing what that meant. Anderson Consulting said yes, because they couldn't spell multimedia either. And they went on to all sorts of different things. Marketing director, HR director, strategy director. I then ended up in the Middle East advising the world's largest or the Middle East's largest sovereign wealth fund on strategic change. And I'm thinking, how did that happen? And it happened because a Jewish headhunter in New York found me on LinkedIn. So life is full of change. And it's a friend of mine said the other day that people say I'm a really lucky person. He was talking about himself. He said, I'm not. It's just when opportunity taps me on the shoulder, I recognize that's happened and I follow it. To me, that's what luck is, to realize, recognize and think, what the hell? As you said, Sean, what the dickens, why don't I go and say yes to this and work it out afterwards? Yeah, There's, we've got similar so, yeah, lives.
2: I don't normally tell jokes on the podcast, but there is one that I, that I like. There's a priest and it's raining heavily and it starts to flood. And They come along in a little rowboat and say, you know, hop in quick, you know, we'll save you. He goes, no, no, it's okay. God's going to save me. And then it gets higher and higher and higher. And so a speedboat comes along, quick, hop in, hop in and, and we'll save you. And he's like, no, no, it's all right. God's going to save me. Anyway, it gets right up to the rooftop. He's standing on the rooftop. Helicopter comes, drops a ladder down. No, no, God's going to save me. Anyway, of course he drowns. And he goes up to heaven and, and he says, what are you doing? And he goes, well, I sent you a rowboat, a speedboat and a helicopter. You, know, <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't take the opportunity. You know, it's like, but I mean, I like that in the context, it's not about being religious, but the point is that sometimes they're right in front of your face, but you're like, you just yeah, don't you can't see them because you, no, you're so set in your ways. And so set in like a paradigm that you either don't want to see it or no, it's going to happen this way. Well, change doesn't happen the way you want it to change. Change often happens yeah, no, I agree. the way you don't want it to change.
1: But Sean, something you mentioned before that I thought I'd pick up on, you were talking about how all of these concerns and fears and whatever is is between our ears. And there's a chapter in The Power to Change that I recommend you read called the the whole section on the psychology of change. And I talk about placebos, as you would expect, and the power of the mind and how powerful this, this organ is between our ears to either stop us doing stuff and how we can harness its power for good Uh, to sound like a a superhero writer. But when I was researching placebos, I found a case of placebo surgery. We all know that if you, placebos are the sugar pills you take. And if you think that they're painkillers, you won't feel the pain. It's even more powerful than that. Because sometimes with people, when you tell them, by the way, this is a sugar pill, the act of taking the pill still relieves the pain. (laughs) But even further than that, I found this placebo surgery where 20 years ago, I'll just read it, the New England Journal of Medicine reported on a trial of 180 patients who were sent for arthroscopy of the knee for osteoarthritis. Now, they were separated into two groups. One group that had the normal surgery and the other that had sham surgery. So they could both just see the screen so they couldn't see the knee and they just simply made an incision in the knee and then sewed it up again. They did absolutely nothing. And they found absolutely no difference between the group that had actually had the surgery and the group that had actually had the sham surgery in terms <laughs> amazing. of pain in terms of time for recovery or in terms of how well the knee worked six, eight weeks later. It floored me. So I, I had to put it in the book. Campbell, just on a, on a
0: personal note, you said it took 50 odd years before you wrote your first book and and now you're kind of like prolifically publishing. (laughs) What happens when it comes to, to change and then the momentum and confidence that comes from winning of good change? That's
1: interesting. Now that, That's a good point. That's a good point. Yes, it took me 53 years. And then why that sort of happened in four years, then there's ends up three going from one book to to three books, is exactly what we're talking about before is opportunity happened. So the first book was published, The Change Catalyst, all about leading change that Wiley published, great hard, bad book. It's It's a beautiful book. That then went on to win the 2018 Business Book of the Year. So then in 2019, I was asked to to be the keynote speaker at the event for the next year's Business Book Awards and sitting there were all of the publishers in the UK, all well, the business book publishers in the UK. So I happened to mention I was uh, writing the second book and that will be available. So I had a choice of people to have a chat to and wonderfully, Kogan Page wanted to write that book. Having picked up an agent between book one and book two, he then put pitched book three, the idea that I'd had for years about this change that you've done, uh, you've both done actually, which is changing careers in the second half of your life. So then you part two is what it's called, thriving in the second half of your life that Hachette has, has decided to publish. But it all came from engineering and accepting opportunities and not just seeing the win of the business book of the year to be, oh, isn't that great? Then I can sit back. And it's like, no, that's an opportunity. That's a stepping stone to move on. Is Jane your wife? She, she is. So, you, so
0: not only have you managed to write uh, a couple of books, you've managed to collaborate with your
1: wife on during, your third book. During a year of pandemic lockdown. Yeah. If that's <laughs> a, perfect a time, time. I don't know what is.
2: How do you differentiate between an opportunity and a distraction when it taps you on the shoulder?
1: That is that is the $64 million That's, question. That's straight
2: out of the catapult. Look at that.
1: Oh, it really is. No, when you work that one out, give us a call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we it's don't know. so yeah. difficult because that, that is a really good point. This third book, I, I didn't know at the time whether it was going to be a distraction because books take a lot of effort to write, particularly if you want them to be good. It takes a lot of effort. It's like that what's a good idea and a bad
0: idea. And, and I think when you become used to change or understand the success side of failure, did you not sort of socialize that quickly, get feedback from other people and start to test that idea? Because what I find is you know, when you have a gazillion great ideas, if you don't tell anyone about them, you, you keep thinking they're great oh, ideas. That's
1: true. I've got a, a really good mate of mine back in Sydney is, I would say, you know, my personal coach. I, I grew up with him and he coaches the whole real estate industry in, in Australia. He's a, he's a bit of a superstar and he's the person, actually, James, the first one, obviously. And then the second one would be Michael, who I'd just pick up the phone to him and say, I've got this idea. What do you think? And he's always optimistic. Oh, I can see how to make that work. I knew the second book was a good idea because it, I was already running workshops on it. The third one, I just gut feel knew it was a good idea. And you're right. We spoke to lots of people our age and and younger saying, we're thinking of writing this book. What do you think? And every single response was, when can I read it? So that was good. But it could have still been a distraction. Who knows what it's going to lead to? We're hoping it's going to lead to workshops and speeches and programs for businesses. But it might just be a really interesting that a handful of people buy. You just, you never know. I'm fascinated by it, and I never thought
0: I'd be at this point in my life where that factored into my decision making. Which was, oh, but I'm 46, and I'm like, when did I start thinking like that? When did that become part of the plan? And like, oh, I better be safer. I better. And it's like, well, no, no, you've got all this experience now. Now's the time to double down.
1: That's it. That is exactly it. You've just you've nailed it. I'm oh, sorry, I didn't mean to ignore give, give George's it away, mate. question, and we're we're going up to something we both know what we can talk about. And yeah, you've nailed it. It's it's actually <laughs> I've got all this experience. What am I going to do with it? And there's a vitality. I can see you, you know, falling into the ocean as you are at the moment. But um, I can I can see you with energy there, saying, "Yeah, what? What? I've got this experience. What, what? What? do I do with it? And I and that's what the second half is all about.
2: To me, the um the statement you said before about making sure you're asking people to run past ideas and things rather than doing it in your own isolated perspective. But the thing too that I I guess I've looked at too is you know, and, and what I tell my, you know, anyone who I work with will ask me the question about this idea. It's like, who else have you spoken to this about? And like, Oh, you know, my cousin, like, what do they do? Oh, he's a baker. I'm like, so he's an expert in this field that you're looking to step into. <laughs> uh, no. Like, so you, you're taking his opinion on board for what reason? So the, the point being that you don't take on. Because he's going to like the
1: idea. because yeah,
2: <laughs> Whether he likes it or didn't, but he's got no basis of his opinion. So, yeah. Yes, ask people, but make sure yeah, you definitely got to ask the right...
0: And I, right I don't know people. about you, Sean, but when I sort of started going out, when I started in business and having ideas, I, I was really careful not to tell anyone because almost like you don't want it to be shot down because you value your own yeah. ideas so much. And I think one of the great things that comes with age and maturity is letting that go and like just just embrace the help around you and... Some, some of the recurring themes we see in the few, Campbell, it'd be great to hear if you you reinforce this and you yeah. mentioned it mentioned it about your coach was the quality of the people around you and their ability to have those really honest discussions where you don't get that artificial harmony, that artificial niceness, where the people around you will say, hey, that's really good or that's actually a really dumb idea.
1: Yeah, and you've got to surround yourself with people that you whose opinions you really trust because they're going to tell you their version of the truth they're not going to gild it or you know sugarcoat it in a way that is unhealthy but that means you've got to have an inner strength to believe that an inner strength to be able to cope with the fact that they might say this idea that you've got is rubbish. They might point out some areas where you're not very good at and you need to be better, but they're doing that from a position of love, from a position of respect to help you then. And so you've got to almost get rid of your ego in a sense. And if you get rid of your ego, but you've still got the core strength and belief in yourself, then you can be open to, uh, to suggestions. And also they're not always right. You know, so it's okay. I can can see where you're coming from. I get that. Thank you for that opinion. I get why you've said that, but that doesn't actually tie in with my values, with what I want to achieve. But there's a couple of good points in there, but I'm not going to do exactly what you've said. I'm going to take a couple of learnings and and go off in in a slightly different direction that I was planning, but still vaguely in the same direction. But you just need to be open to find people who love and respect you, that are saying, things for all the right reasons
2: and if it is rubbish then it's going to save you a heck of a lot of time and headache
1: eight out of ten new ideas don't really make it so uh you know this is the thing when it comes to writing books particularly you, you sort of think oh my gosh all this effort and it might be nonsense <laughs> or yeah, it might not succeed or it might you know it's and it, that's just that's part of life too you know
0: it, it is and i think that that was one of the really what i'm always super grateful for as a fighter pilot was everything has changed right everything is super fast yeah. Super changeable, but we built systems to deal with that. But yeah. the systems was so incredibly simple and basic. And and that conversation, you, you hit the nail on the head there, Ken, where you said you get feedback from someone, you don't necessarily have to agree with them, but you value yeah. the feedback. And this 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 concept of a red team, which is which is when we do all this planning as a fighter pilot, when we get ready to go and we go on a mission, one person just asks, has a look at it asks a few salient questions, and it's a one-way conversation. You don't justify, oh, but here's what I was thinking and here's why it's yeah. such a great idea. You just take it and, and you go, okay, well, yeah.
1: Find the nuggets of wisdom that you can do something. Correct. With, you know, find the things that are I always use the word nuggets in my, in my workshops. You've got to find that in this workshop today, if you go away with one nugget, then it's been a really good use of your time. I think you'll go away with more than that. Take a piece of paper, write nuggets on the top, and every time you hear a good idea or you say something, you think, oh, that was good, write it down, and I'll, we're going to share our nuggets at the end of this. So, look, when did you stop flying as a fighter pilot? I airport? was forcibly stopped yeah, 16 years ago now.
0: I remember wow. when people used to ask me that question. I was like, 11 years ago, and then all of a sudden it became 16. I'm like, what the hell? Where did that five years go? So I medically discharged. That was it for me. And then 10 years in the entrepreneurial wilderness and then self-awakening when someone introduced me to this after being a concept and I I sat there and a fighter pilot talked about applying what we did in business. I'm like, holy smokes, that's what I've been doing. I've been doing all of that stuff I was trained to do by accident, applying it into the entrepreneurial world and it worked great. And to your experiences, Campbell, you know, when you talk to someone that doesn't experience change, you have to use the word change. But if I was to have a conversation with you, I wouldn't even use that word. It would just be life. It just be our existence, our journey, our choice. And
1: and to realize it's, you know, it's 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 tough. You know, it's that there's a lot of emotions as as we talked about, you know, there's a lot of barriers we put up and, and it's all about building resilience really and realizing that change is a part of life. As you said. It is just life, isn't it? Well, it's like leadership is leading change. Otherwise, you're just managing the status quo. So anyone says, oh, well, no, that's a change project. You know, I'll, I'll get someone in to lead that. No, 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 no. Life is a change project. You know, yeah. business is sort of leadership is leading change.
0: And Campbell, you get that. But, you know, I've, I've had an opportunity to work with a couple of very, very big organisations doing change. Yeah. And you would go in week after week and it's like it's just not working. It is not getting momentum. And one of the key areas, and you said it before a while, right at the start and uh, I've been just holding on to this question. One of the things I, I really have noticed in bigger organisations, the, the real killer of, of effective change is no one talks. People tell. People tell. I've been working on this for a month. Do it. And everyone's like, "Well, where was I for that month? What are you, what yeah. are you talking about? The whole month you were doing that, we've been fine. Why? Why the big change? Redundancies everywhere. Everything's moving, and it's set, like this absolute shell shock. And the only response that yep. the, the organisation has is not doing it. I'm going to think up every possible reason I can imagine okay. to say no.
1: Of course, of course, because. People need to be engaged properly in understanding the thought process. You know, they not only need to know what we're changing, but they need to know why. And they can't just be told why. In one of the slides that I use in my speeches is a wonderful little pithy comment that says one of the reasons why change fails is that too often we listen to reply rather than listen to understand. And that happens in business, well, it happens in life, but it happens in business all the time, the leader will stand up or the change project leader or whatever and say, here's all the work we've done, just, just as you said, and this is what we're doing. And it's cold to everyone. You're thinking, hang on, well, why do we need to be doing this? Why is that the best solution you've come up with to a problem that I didn't even know existed? You know, so so engaging people is just so obvious, but it's one of the big reasons why. But why do why, we not why, do it? What, why? Why is it such a default behaviour
0: to just not be collaborative like that? I look at it and I go, why would you have thought that would work?
1: Why did you yeah,
0: think that approach? Because
1: for some reason, people in the past, and I'm hoping it's one of the good things to come out of COVID, is that we realise that life and work have all intertwined and actually every business is a people business. But in the past, the people we've hired to be change managers are emotionally unintelligent clipboard holders, You know, people that, that only think in terms of projects. All projects. they not be thinking t- in terms of those. So there's no EQ there. There's no realization that it's emotions that rule the day, that if we don't get people on board, if we don't appeal to their emotions, it ain't going to work. You know, Logic is one fifth of the way there. So, and what they also, they seem to hire people in, in the past as project managers or as change management, which is a term that I, I loathe, change management project managers, is people who are just really much better with chevrons and spreadsheets than they are with people. Business is all about people. So when I go into an organisation, I run leading change workshops for the leaders throughout the organisation. And where it works, no, only where it works is when the top team also does the workshop. So many times I've gone in for large fund managers, global fund managers actually, global wealth managers, companies, and it's the CEO that's brought me in and has said, oh, but the exec team doesn't need to do this. You know, which is like, oh, I'll I, take the money. I cannot I believe that all work. the time. <laughs> Can you come in and fix all my
0: people? Can yeah, you tell exactly. them to be better and to do what I tell them better? And it's well, like, okay, well, that's well, us Yeah,
1: Actually, what CEO brought me in and said, Cam, I've got the strategy. I need you to, and he waved his hands around, said, I need you to do your workshop thing and get everyone aligned to my strategy.
2: Okay, now, and, and wave your magic wand.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I just find that baffling. And the spinoff of that in companies that are valued at billions of dollars, yep. the wastage is mind-blowing. I mean, you must have seen inordinate sums of money, and you alluded to it before, that are a direct cost of change, but what's yep. the
1: intangible cost of change? Uh, well, that's why I said before that emotion is four times more powerful than, than logic when it comes to, to employee engagement it's all about engaging people emotionally it's about being emotionally intelligent and if you don't do that there's a great piece of research that I've put on my on a website from the corporate leadership council uh, the website's changeandstrategy.com if you want to, if you want to have a look at it and it talks about the value that is lost in businesses by not engaging with their people and it's in the trillions to be perfectly honest if you are extrapolated worldwide but if you want shareholder value to increase, if you want things to be delivered, then the only way is to engage and empower your people. We all know this. If we're up for it, if we're ready for this change, if we're ready to move in a different direction, we're going to really deliver for this. If we're only, oh, yeah, I got the logic, and the logic is shareholders need more money and and we need more profit, and, you know, pfft, my heart's not in it. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. The skill that leaders need to develop, they can't just slot a chip in to them.
0: I can just, all these names and roles are flipping through my head who I'm personally emailing this podcast to, who are in those executive leadership roles. And just, hey, look, guys, had a lovely chat with this gentleman over in the UK. His name's Campbell. I reckon there might be something
1: in this for you. Yeah, I I think we need to run some workshops together. We'll talk after this.
2: (laughs) Awesome, awesome you've clearly uh, spent a lot of time involved in change as we all do but but actually as boo you alluded to earlier it was you know when you've actually identified change as change not just stuff happening and going okay well yep. how do we bottle this how do we communicate this how do we manage this how do we lead this change so you've learned a heck of a lot you know in your 53 or so years if you were to take some piece of wisdom that you've okay, taken right from that and go back to a younger version of yourself what would you say to them
1: you know, when you sent me the, the list of questions you might ask, what I thought about that is, is that if I was to tell my 21-year-old self that had taken off his bone dome and his parachute for the last time, which was just before my 21st birthday, and said, you're not going to do this again because you're really rubbish at it, what I would tell him is that no one is as clever or as confident as they seem. And also to trust yourself and to believe in yourself that the innate skills and assets that you have are really valuable. And frankly, I could be saying that to anybody. And the last thing would be don't waste your time because time is really precious. But most importantly is to trust yourself, like yourself, and value yourself.
0: And that wraps up another episode of The Few. Thank you to our partners, Afterburner, for team building, development, and alignment. We understand now how important it is to have the right people around you. Get them on board with where you want to go. Momentum Media, the largest industry publisher in the country, connecting your business to the Australian community. ICMI, Australia's premier speaker bureau, representing the few that do fulfill their life's purpose. And finally, Sean's Inner Circle, the business coaching organization for small and medium enterprises looking to make that next step. Thanks again for listening in and downloading today. Please leave a review on whatever platform you are currently listening to this podcast and
2: reach out to our partners who can help you make the transition to the few. Massive show of appreciation for you and your time today, Campbell. Really appreciate it.
1: Absolute pleasure. i really enjoyed it and looking forward to working with you both.
0: Yeah, thanks, Campbell, for being so generous with your time and knowledge. Really appreciate it, mate.
1: This has been The Few Podcast with Boo and Sean. If you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us please share it with your friends. If you're posting this on social media, use the hashtag The Few so we can see who's listening. The Few Podcast is recorded at Momentum Media in Sydney, Australia. To listen to more episodes, visit us at fewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Dream big, keep pushing and one day you can become one of The Few. We'll see you next week.